growing in God's Word, and learning what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. Listen, if this is real, if God is gripping your heart and your life about the direction that you're going, then bear fruit. Show your life for what it is. Turn around. How about, hey, let's try a new direction. Real belief causes real action. That's the fact we established last week as we started in chapter 3 of the book of Jonah. If we really believe something, it will affect our actions. But what does our belief and actions cause God to do? When we feel the weight of our sin, and when we turn from that sin and begin to go in a new direction, God recognizes what's going on in our lives. I'm Rick Freeman. Welcome to Crosswalk. We're in the middle of a series entitled, Jonah, Man on the Run. In chapter 1, Jonah ran from God. In chapter 2, Jonah ran toward God. Now in chapter 3, we find Jonah running with God. As Pastor Clay pointed out last week, chapter 3 is the happy ending before the ending. Once the giant fish spit Jonah up on the land, Jonah was ready to go with God. He carried God's message to the wicked people of Nineveh, and they responded big time. When the people repented and turned to God, wicked Nineveh no longer existed. There was no wicked Nineveh to bring judgment upon. It's an amazing record of what is almost certainly the largest mass conversion in the history of the world. So what does our real belief cause God to do? That's the question we're going to explore today as Pastor Clay continues this wonderful study of the book of Jonah. We're glad you've joined us for this week's Crosswalk. We are often guilty of running from God. Now, there's two aspects you could talk about in running from God. There's the person that's running from God Uh, that's been running from God their entire life and has no relationship with Him at all. They are running from that relationship. Whether they even would would couch it in those terms or not, uh, I'm not sure. Whether they would even think of it in those terms or not, but they are running from a relationship with God. We're going to talk about that some uh, today. Uh, that's, That's someone that's running from God, but it's also possible for those of us who perhaps have come to Christ, have been adopted into the family of God, have become part of the family of God, and yet we too can at times run. It may be because, quite honestly, some, something that we've let come into our life, some sin that has creeped into our life that we know is wrong, that we know uh, has to change, but, but rather than deal with it, rather than face it, we just turn and, and run from it. It might be that. It might be that God has begun to burden your heart, my heart, someone's heart about a particular Something that he wants to see happen in your life. Maybe he wants to build something into your life. Maybe he wants to use you in some type of service uh, that you can't even think of. Oh, I could never do that kind of thing. And so you run. We run. Jonah was a man who's running. In chapter 1, he ran from God. In chapter 2... He ran toward God as he began to recognize, and as I said, being in the belly of a fish three days will do this to you. 
as he began to realize that maybe this wasn't the best idea, that that God was a great God and that God was a God of, of righteousness and a God of mercy and all those kind of things. And so he was, in essence, running toward God. And in chapter 3, as we began to look at last week and as we'll continue this week, in chapter 3, he's running with God. Chapter 4 is another story. <laughs> Jonah, chapter 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I'm going to tell you. So Jonah arose, and he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. In other words, God, that's what God told him to do. He was being obedient now. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. We discussed that last week. I encourage you, if you've got questions about that, go back, listen to last week's message. You can download it from iTunes. You can listen to it right off our website. And then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast. And put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat. Or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. And let men call on God earnestly. That each may turn from his wicked way. And from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows. God may turn and relent. And withdraw his burning anger. So that we will not perish. Verse 10. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared that he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. Jonah chapter 3, as I said last week, is the high water mark of the book of Jonah. It's the happy ending before the ending. And to summarize chapter 3 in in a single sentence, as I sometimes do in this thing that I call the BP squared, the big picture biblical principle, I said last week, and I bring it to you again this week, that if I were to summarize chapter 3 as the big picture biblical principle, it would look like this. Real belief causes real action. That when a belief, whether whether you're talking about a religious belief, a belief in God, or, or a belief in in uh, the Carolina Panthers or whatever your belief is, that, that if you really believe that something is going to happen, you will take action as a result of that. And last week, as we looked at Jonah chapter 3, we talked about the action that results from our perspective. What, what does it cause, what does real belief cause us to do? And here's what it looked like. We said first, that we respond to preaching concerning our sin. And I remind you again that the word preaching there simply means proclaiming, 
proclamation. Yes, it may be a, a preacher, a pastor standing on a, on a platform and, and proclaiming to people, but it also may be you right there in your office complex with some coworker that says, man, I, I, I'm just not sure that I love him anymore and I, I'm not sure if I want to I stay in this. And, and you're able to say, well, God's word says this concerning what you're thinking about doing. That's proclaiming, that's preaching the word of God. And when our belief is real, we will begin to respond to the preaching, the proclamation, the pronouncement of the word of God. In the Ninevites' case, Jonah's message was short and sweet. Just 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Yet 40 days, just eight words. Some of y'all probably wish some of my sermons would be about that length. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Actually, it was shorter than that in the original Hebrew. It was only five words. But the people respond. Why? Because God's Spirit working in their lives causes this belief that takes action. So, that was one of the action steps that we said would happen. We respond to the preaching concerning our sin. The second thing we said was that there will be remorse because of our sin. Remorse, regret, conviction, however you want to say it, it's a realization that I am a sinner. I have violated God's laws. I have offended a holy and righteous God, and I am wicked in His sight. In verse 5 of chapter 3, They called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. In verse 6, the king, when he finds out about it, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. In verse 7 and 8, he even tells us that he even ordered that all of the animals were to fast as well. They would have nothing to eat and nothing to drink. We talked last week about what sackcloth was, what fasting was, what putting on ashes, what all of that represented, the bottom line was this. It represents, it pictures a people who are absolutely, totally, completely broken over their sin. They recognize, they realize, they have remorse over as a result of their sin. I can't begin to tell you how important that is in our particular lives because sometimes it's easy to gloss over sin in my life. See, well, you know, it's just, yeah, I need to be careful of that or I slipped up a little or or, wow, I better, you know. No, It, it it is feeling the weight of offending my holy, righteous God. Which then leads to the third action step that we talked about last week, to repent from our sin. And again, I say that's not the same thing as remorse. Remorse is feeling bad. Remorse is feeling conviction. But if no change comes about as a result of that remorse, then what difference does it make? Do you understand what I'm saying? If, if, and, and we talked about that word, repent. It, it means to turn around, to go in a new direction. My life is different. I don't just feel bad about what I did. I don't just feel bad that I got caught. I feel bad. I know what I did was wrong. I know it's not what's pleasing to my Heavenly Father and not what He wants for my life because He has my best interests in mind. Can I say that? 
This is not, I don't know how many times I've told people this through the years, God is not some sort of cosmic killjoy that he just wants you to have a bad time in life. He doesn't want you to have any fun. No, he loves you and he cares for you. And when he sees you straying off beyond the parameters that he has set up for our safety, he begins to work in our lives and he uses his word and we respond to that and we feel remorse for that and we repent, we turn around and we go in a new direction. In, uh, in Matthew chapter 3, uh, some of the Pharisees, the religious leaders are coming out to John the Baptist and they're, they're wanting to be baptized. John the Baptist is baptizing people. We're baptizing today and some of them want to be baptized and John's like, what are, you, what are you doing here? Because John knows, it's just, it's just all about a show. For them. And in, in uh, Matthew uh, chapter 3, I think it is verse 8, he says, uh, Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You understand what he's saying? Listen, if this is real, if, this is, if God is gripping your heart and your life about the direction that you're going, then, then bear fruit. Show your life for what it is. Turn around. How about, hey, let's try a new direction. Talk to me, goose. What's happening here in your life? Is it re- are you really changing? As a result of this, some of you I know have probably heard me tell this story. I've told it a few times through the years about the, the riverboat captain in the late 1800s uh, who operated a, a barge, a gambling barge. It had gambling equipment on it and stuff like that. And he would float up and down the Cumberland River and stop in towns and cities and operate a, a gambling joint is what, what he did. And uh, he pulls into Nashville uh, one, one day and he and his... Uh, crew, they get off and they're going to go have them a drink and, uh, and somehow there's an evangelist in town and the evangelist has gotten all of the bars, uh, somehow he got all the bars closed down during his revival uh, time while he was going to be in, in town and uh, that didn't sit too well with the riverboat captain, he got extremely angry about it, he and his men and uh, they made a plan, they were going to come back that night to the revival service and they were, gonna, they were just going bust to bust up that tent, bust up, up beat up the, the evangelist, just they're going to take care of this once and for all uh, there he closed their bars and so he, they, they came back that night, and as they entered the tent, as the story goes, as they entered the tent, this evangelist was, was, was proclaiming the message of Christ, what you have sung about this morning. And this riverboat captain came under deep conviction, just under the power of the Holy Spirit. He just felt the weight of his sin, and, and he, he suddenly felt that remorse, and he repented of his sin as he responded to the Word of God, and he gave his life to Jesus Christ. And as the story goes, he immediately went down to the, to the river, and dumped all of his gambling equipment into the river right then and there. Just had it pushed all overboard, pushed into the river, and all of it destroyed. Turned his barge into a barge that would haul goods and supplies and that stuff. And he spent the rest of his life and the rest of his, his human resources in trying to build a, a building, build an auditorium, uh, so that that evangelist, every time he came to Nashville, would have a place that he could preach where the people wouldn't have to worry about the rain or the cold. They could come inside. And he spent his, the rest of his life doing that. And after he died, they renamed the auditorium in his honor, in the, in the name of Thomas Ryman, Ryman Auditorium, that later became the home of the Grand Ole Opry. His actions... showed a change. There was repentance. So, when your faith is real, it causes action. But what about God? Does real belief cause action on God's part? Does our real belief cause action on God's part? 
As a matter of fact, why don't y'all ask me that? Come on. Does real belief cause action on God's part? Why, yes, it does. I'm so glad you asked. Yes, it does. Let's look at it first. God recognizes our repentance from sin. When we respond to the Word of God, when we feel the weight of our sin, and when we turn from that sin and begin to go in a new direction, God recognizes what's going on in our lives. Look at uh, verse 9, I think it is. Who knows? This is what the, the Ninevites say. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we shall not perish. Now, it seems to, seems to me that it's hard to believe that Jonah would have included this in his message given his hatred for the Assyrians. But it appears that the people of Nineveh had some sort of concept of the mercy of God. Now, I want you to understand, I do not believe for a second that they're trying to make a deal with God. As we talked so much about and looked at last week, they are truly broken over their sin. They are truly repentant of their sin. No matter what happens, no matter what God does as a result of this, they are walking away from their sin and they're walking towards God. But it appears that they seem to have some idea And they seem to hold out some hope that if they repent and turn from their sins, God will have mercy on them. And you know what? He does. That's exactly what he does. When our belief is so real that it causes action on our part, God takes action then by responding to our response to his word. He recognizes the repentance that's in our life. You see, one of the things that you and I have to understand about this is that God is always, God is always looking for people to repent. God is always looking for people to turn to Him. He's always longing for that fact. Some of you are probably familiar with the story um, in the book of Luke, in Luke chapter 15, of what's known as the, the story or the parable of the prodigal son. The story is really not so much about the son as it is about the father because it pictures our heavenly father and his great love for us. But in the story, in the parable, the father has two sons. The youngest son decides that he no longer wishes to live in his father's house. He no longer wishes to live under his father's uh, authority. And so he says, hey, dad, just, hey, daddy-o, just give me my inheritance now. No sense in waiting until you die. I might be too old to enjoy it. Just go ahead and give me, I'm, I'm embellishing a little bit, but you get the, the idea. Just go ahead and give me my share of the inheritance now. And his father does. And the youngest son goes off and lives his life by his own standards, in his own direction, with no thoughts of his father or the consequences or anything else. And he squanders his inheritance on anything and everything and ends up with nothing. 
He wastes his life. He wastes his inheritance. He wastes everything on just whatever he thought might please him in this world. By the way, the prodigal son is a picture of you and me. We were created for a relationship with God. And yet it seems that most people aren't interested in a relationship with God, and instead they tend to run the other way. They don't want to live under God's authority. Instead, let me live my life the way I want, do what I want, when I want. I'll, t- I'll take what God will, will give me. If he's got stuff he wants me, I'll take that stuff, but with no desire really to, to be in this relationship with God. So, at one point, it gets so bad with the son. He's in such destitute, such poverty, that he hires himself out to a, a Gentile. Uh, and, and one of his jobs is to feed the pigs, which would have been incredibly demeaning and humiliating to a, a Jewish, young Jewish man, since the pigs were a ceremonially unclean animal. And he, and he longs, the text says that he longs to fill his stomach with the with the pig slop. He longs to fill his stomach with the scraps that the pigs are going to get to eat. That's just how low we can go sometimes in our lives. And then watch this in verse 17 through 19. But when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. Do you know what you call that? You call that repentance. Responding, remorse, repenting turning around and going in a new direction. Then watch this in verse 20. So he got up and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. I have a question for you. How did the father see the son when he was so far off because he was looking for him in my mind's eye I can just see that father every day standing on the front porch or standing in the field and straining and searching the horizon and 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 looking out and and trying to see as far as he can see searching 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 for his son who is lost for a son who has gone his own way do you see it do you see what an incredibly beautiful picture this is of the love that God has for us do you see the point Jesus was making in this parable and then in verse 21 through 24 and the son said to him when he gets there he says father he does just what he said he's going to do father I've I've sinned against heaven and in your sight I'm no longer worthy to be called your son watch this he just stops him but the father said to his slaves quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him And put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf, kill it. And let us eat and celebrate for this son of mine was dead. And he has come to life again. He was lost 
and he has been found, and they began to celebrate. This is an amazing picture of the grace of God. This story and the book of Jonah is this amazing account of the grace of God. Do you understand? God is looking for people to repent. God is looking for people to turn to him. Like the father in the, in the parable, he's, he's waiting to run and embrace you and embrace me when we turn away from our sin and we turn to him. He runs and meets us. That's how great his love is for us. He recognizes our repentance. And then there's a one more action step that deals with how God responds here. He recognizes our repentance from sin and he redeems our lives from sin. This is important. This is important. Verse 10, we read it a few moments ago, but when God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Sometimes when you read that, uh, that phrase where it says God relented, the King James, I think, actually says God repented, we can somehow get the idea that God changed his mind. That's not the case. That's not really the case. In the first place, God had promised judgment on wicked Nineveh. Wicked Nineveh no longer existed. When the people repented and turned to God, wicked Nineveh no longer existed. There was no wicked Nineveh to bring judgment upon. In the second place, God didn't change his mind. God has always said this from the very beginning. That if people will turn to him, if they'll turn from their sin and they'll turn to him, that he will come to them and he will embrace them and he will forgive them and he will restore them to right relationship with him. That's always been, that's, that's always been God. It's part of his very nature. It's part of, of, of who he is. In, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve are hiding in, in their sin and in their shame. And what does God do? He comes to get them. Jonah runs as far as he can in the opposite direction. And what does God do? He comes to get him. The prodigal son that represents you and me is, is running from, from his relationship with his father. He doesn't want anything to do with it. He's, he's going to live his life his way, do his thing. And what does God do? He runs. What does the father do? He runs and embraces him when he turns. It's, all, it's what God always does. It's who God is. But he also promises that if people don't turn to him, that his righteousness demands justice. By the way, that did happen with Nineveh. Here in the book of Jonah, Nineveh did repent. They did turn back to God, but that we know historically somewhere about two generations later, they turned back away from God. They went back into the wickedness and evil and everything else, and judgment eventually did come. So God always keeps his word. It's not a matter of God changing its mind. It's just a matter of God being who he is. A God of grace, a God of mercy, a God of love, and a God who is waiting for you and me to say, Father, against you and you alone have I sinned and done this thing in your sight. Will you forgive me? Will you restore to me the joy of my salvation? And he does. That's who he is. That's what he does. Now, I want to say this real quickly. 
so that nobody misunderstands. In case you might think that because the people of Nineveh straightened up, that because they cleaned up their act, that God forgave their sin. No. Sin always has to be paid for, ladies and gentlemen. A righteous, just judge always executes punishment on the crime. God, being the just judge that he is, pronounces judgment on our crimes. The Bible puts it this way in Romans 3.23. All have sinned and come short of God's glorious standard. We've all missed the mark. But then, in an amazing display of love, the just judge gets up from his bench steps down and stands in the place of the condemned and takes our punishment upon himself. Romans 6.23, the wages, the cost, the payment of the crime is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Peter puts it this way, I, I love the way Peter puts it in 1 Peter 3.18. Christ himself suffered for sins once. He was not guilty, but he suffered for those who are guilty. To bring you to God. That's what he did. He redeems us. When we respond to the word of God and we feel the remorse over our sin and we repent and turn away from that, God recognizes that repentance and he redeems us from our sins. It had to be paid for, ladies and gentlemen, and it was. First John 2.2 2 says this. He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins. And not only our sins, but the sins of all the world. Christ paid for the sins of Nineveh just as much as the sins of today. He paid for all of it at the cross. First John 4. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice. The big technical term is the propitiation, the sacrificial payment to take away our sins. When we respond, God responds. He redeems us from our sins. And that is why, ladies and gentlemen, that is why as he hung on the cross, as his life's breath slipped away, that is why Jesus said, it is finished. The Aramaic term that Jesus would have used is tetelestai. It means paid in full. As I understand it, it was a term used in the, in the commerce uh, sector. That whenever someone uh, paid off a debt that was owed, written onto the receipt was tetelestai. And when Jesus finished on the cross... He wrote on the receipt in his life's blood, paid in full. What a God. What a Savior. What a Redeemer. What a God. As Pastor Clay showed us today, God is waiting, willing, and wanting people to repent of their sins and turn to him. 
When the people of Nineveh responded to the word of God and repented of their sin, God responded by recognizing their repentance and redeeming them from their sin. Pastor Clay mentioned in today's message that so many people spend their lives running from God, acting as if God wanted to harm them. But as we saw in Jonah chapter 3, nothing could be further from the truth. If you're running from God, why not do as the people of Nineveh did? They heard the word of God and turned from their sin and turned to God. They found him waiting for them, and so will you. We're glad you joined us for this week's message on Crosswalk. Each week, Pastor Clay opens the Bible and brings out its exciting and practical truths to apply to our lives. Cross Culture Church is a new church in North Raleigh, but instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice realness. We meet Sundays at 1030 at Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540 Exit 7. And we welcome anyone looking for a place to learn about God's plan for their life. At Cross Culture Church, we experience the liberating, satisfying, life-changing power of the cross. And it's our desire to bring that power to a culture in need of freedom, hope, and joy. We hope you'll come join us on a Sunday morning. We'll save a seat for you. Cross Culture Church, a new church for people like you. Learn more about us, who we are, what we're about, what we do, and what we believe. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org. Cross Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross.